If you've bought property, you likely funded your purchase partly through a mortgage. If the property increases in value over time by more than the cost of the borrowing, you're better off. In the stock market, using debt is often called gearing. The new BetaShares Wealth Builder Funds, ASX ticker symbols G200 and GHHF, offer moderate gearing across Australian and global shares for investors who are comfortable with the higher risks associated with gearing their investments. You can discover how they work by visiting betashares.com.au. Please don't forget that gearing magnifies gains and losses, so read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. This is a podcast by the Rask Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of the Rask Group. I'm Pete Wardgen, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. G'day, welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. I'm Pete Wardgen. I'm here with Amy Lunardi this week. Amy, how's it going? Oh, really good, Pete. We are recording this just before Christmas, but it's not going to be released till the new year. So we are just tidying up a few things before Chrissy and just, um, you know, I, I've still got a few people buying properties. Last year, I bought a property on Christmas Eve, which is a great present for them. Um, But then from here, really not much happens in the property world through a lot of January. Yeah, we're well and truly into the silly season and yeah, we're we're the same. We're still buying properties. We're still getting offers, trying to uh, ram them in before the Christmas break. And uh, yeah, it's gone all the way through until, um, well, the week before Christmas this year. And as you say, there's, there's a bit of a lull now, I suppose, between now and Australia Day weekend and probably even for an extra week beyond that because everybody's away and especially everybody's in Queensland, away, everyone disappears but... off. Yeah, so, uh, and, <laughs> and um, also the real estate agents need a break because just remember we work six days a year. Some agents work seven days. Um, so a lot of agents take the time in January to take quite an extended break, which is totally fair enough. I've shadowed a few agents over the years just a little bit in their day-to-day work and, yeah, you, you don't realise just how – uh, non-stop it is for some of them the most ambitious ones they uh they don't get much time off because they're always networking always thinking about the next listing and the next next lead and the next phone call so uh, yeah well-deserved break so amy today we're going to talk about um buying the right property blue chip properties and how to build your property brief um let's get some definitions down pat to begin with i, I hear this phrase quite a lot of blue chip um and i guess yes well i guess it in i guess like a lot of these phrases it probably originally came from um stock market investment terminology where blue chip you're kind of thinking about something that's um a safe investment because it's done well previously it's top quality it's been around for a long time and it's usually the sort of um 
most reputable brands, that kind of thing. And I think it sometimes gets used in sport a little bit as well, especially in American sport. They talk about the blue chip players. They're the, oh, you know, the, like the best of the best sort of thing. So I assume in, when people say blue ribbon or blue ribboned or mm. blue chip, but in property, I guess you're talking about those sort of dress circle suburbs, the best, the best locations, the most sought after uh, type of thing, but also... I guess, mirroring what they talk about in the stock market, a relatively safe long-term bet as well. Yeah, well, I think blue chip originally came from poker a long time ago where the blue chip was, and I, if someone wants to fact check me, that's totally fine, <laughs> but I think the, the blue chip was the most valuable chip. So when we're applying it to anything else, you know, we're talking about sport or property or shares, it is something that is seen as the most valuable and it's just got that consistency of performance as well, which is also really a really important consideration. Um, but Pete, if we're talking about the share market, for example, before we get into property, what are some examples of, of blue chip shares? I'm going to do a rolling fact check on you here, Amy. Blue chips are usually worth $10. It can vary. They're the highest value chip in a classic three-color poker chip set. So, yeah, I'll pay that. You uh, you got it bang on. So uh, yeah, I was thinking of um, I was thinking of roulette with the, you know you have the ponies and then the ten dollars and the five dollars. But obviously from poker, it's a different terminology. Yep. So you bang on. And now I've completely forgotten what question you asked. Me. Oh, uh, blue chip shares. What are some examples of? Yeah. So if, look, I was, Australia... if I was going out shopping for some shares tomorrow and I said, Pete, I just I want to buy blue chip. What should I? What would I buy? Yeah, I think it, it, traditionally, if somebody was talking about blue chip share in Australia, they'd be thinking about BHP Billiton, you know, a company that's um, been around for a hundred years. It's not failed to pay a dividend over years and years and years. Um, so, uh, and it's, there's a kind of a um, an idea or a concept called the Lindy effect, which is more or less in, in plain English. And this is something that Nassim Taleb talks about, is that the longer something's been around, the more you can expect it to be around for the long term you know it's very well established um so if you think about um a drink like guinness or something you know it's been been around since the 1700s it's not just going to die out suddenly because it's just so well established so yeah i think um yes if you if you did a uh you know family fortunes type uh survey and you asked um people to name a blue chip share in australia they'll probably think of bhp or something that's been around for 100 years or there may be one of the other established big uh, market cap companies. So, um, And if blue chip shares are the most <clears throat> valuable, if they're the most valuable and they've had consistent performance, why wouldn't everyone just only buy blue chip shares, Pete? Well, yes. Yeah, so there's a, there's a difference here between price and value. So much like in the property market, you're not really, as a buyer, you're not necessarily all but it, that interested in the long-term historic performance. You also want to know what's going to happen after you've bought. Um, so, yeah, so the blue chip companies in the stock market might have a, a market capitalization in the billions, you know, so they, they might be the most valuable in that sense. Um, but sometimes they're not the highest growing uh, companies because they've been around for so long and they're so big that it's actually harder. If you think about a company like Telstra, for example, um, it's considered a, you know, a, a high dividend paying uh, stock. But actually, since um, the float and since the various um, offerings over the years, the, the returns haven't been that great uh, for most people because 
Um, it's already a, a, a huge uh, sort of conglomerate and also a huge business, I should say, um, albeit you know, previously with a monopoly. But yeah, if you look at the price, you know, since people bought um, in some of those offerings 10, 15 years, 20 years ago, the, the returns haven't been that great. And actually, sometimes um, it's the sort of smaller growth companies that have delivered the best returns. And I, I guess if you're putting this in the property analogy, um, you might be looking the alternative to buying blue chip is to buy uh, to be buying in a gentrifying location, one that's improving over time and therefore you're chasing higher growth. I think, um, I guess the idea with a blue chip um, type of investment in the stock market is that you've got a high level of certainty. If you're picking a genuine blue chip investment, you, you can say with some level of confidence that that company will still be around 10, 20, 30 years into the future. Um, you know, things like big oil companies or uh, businesses like that that have been around, they've managed their capital through many cycles and um, they've continued to make profits and pay out dividends. I mean, that's the general idea. It's considered safe and stable, I suppose. Safe and stable, but not but not necessarily going to give you um, this, these extreme uh, sometimes extreme yearly growth that you could get from taking a little bit more risk. So there's an there's can be a, like an inverse relationship between risk and return. Depend and this this relates back to property as well. So when it comes to property, buying a property, we uh, we can consider blue chip in I guess two main elements, which is the location and the property itself. But I wouldn't I wouldn't say you could um buy a blue chip property in a non blue chip location. Is that fair enough to say, Pete? Yes, I think so. I, I think that part of the challenge here is sometimes the terminology is not that well defined, but yeah. in my head anyway, I mean the scarce commodity in Australian property is well located blocks of land. You know, that's the stuff that people really, you know, want to get their hands on. And Yes, in secondary locations, that demand is never going to be as consistent. Mm. Um, you can still buy a great, great property in a great, um, in a in a. You can buy a great property which is ticking all of the boxes and suiting the demographics of that area, but not necessarily in a blue chip location. But if you can get a combination of both, um, then then that could be a, a good goal as well. So when it comes to location, if we're trying to think about what defines and what makes a blue chip location. These are areas where people want to live. I know that sounds really simple and really basic, but you've got to really think about like, why do people want to get in there? So it needs to be an area which is aspirational. People want to move there because that location offers them something. They're not just moving there because that's all they can afford. Because sometimes you have suburbs which do have an upswing because they are adjoining other suburbs or they're new suburbs that are being built and you've got people just flocking into into there because it's a new estate, but not because it's aspirational. It's just because that's all they can afford. And that's not that doesn't create long-term stability for capital growth. So these locations are aspirational. We have areas which actually have income growth because you need incomes to grow to have capital growth. People need to have more money moving into those areas to push those prices up. We need to have relatively broad buyer appeal, so not just appealing to one particular demographic. We need it to have um, good sources of employment, like people can either work in that within that area and have a broad source and broad 
like choices for employment or just be quite well located to a major city because it's fair to say the highest paying jobs in Australia are within the capital cities and then even more concentrated to Melbourne, Sydney, mostly Sydney, <laughs> um, and then to Brisbane to a certain extent as well. So location, like proximity to a, to a capital city. Um, and then also things like public transport, amenity, like if you've got a, a location with amazing, vibrant village and lots of shops and cafes and restaurants, that's why people want to live there. And also schooling, private schooling as well, like especially in Melbourne, in our eastern suburbs and close in in the southeastern suburbs, those have what are considered as the most well-regarded private schooling and people who send their children to private schooling, funnily enough, they are they attending to be higher income people. That's where they want to live. That's where they need to live to get into those schools. That makes sense. I'll probably throw into the mix there as well, um, growing wealth or intergenerational wealth, especially in Sydney. If you look at some of those eastern suburbs, um, yes, I mean, incomes do go up over time. Often it's um, it's either bankers with their bonuses or uh, but it's very often business uh, wealth or um, in Australia in particular where we don't have punitive death duties, just wealth being passed down from one generation to the next. And, uh, yes, it makes it very difficult for new entrants into those markets. So as a result, you get very sort of consistent capital growth when you look at the historical performance. And I think at the very top end of the market, the sort of you get the sort of trophy home type properties, which... Um, or what they call a Veblen good, I suppose. Torstein Veblen uh, talked about it uh, decades ago. Uh, people, they're buying homes, basically they've got an appeal because other people can't afford them. You know, the average person is never going to be able to afford you know, a beachfront home in uh, Bronte or the eastern suburbs or up on the, you know, those sort of ocean view locations. And they almost like how the top private schools can charge very high fees because people will just pay whatever. At the very top end of the market, you definitely get that kind of uh, that scarcity. And the appeal is almost being able to say to people, look, I can afford this location that the average person can't. And that's where the mm. aspirational part comes in, I think. Yeah, well, scarcity is very much a driving factor for for property. If you have a look at beachfront homes in particular, there's only a certain amount of them that are available at any point in time and then these tightly held suburbs where only a few come up now and again and they draw buyers out sometimes into the market which who weren't actively looking so the agents will know there's certain high-end or high-income buyers who they'll just call if a property comes up in that area and they know that they might be interested even if they're not active buyers um, but sometimes we've got these blue chip suburbs which I, uh, when the market comes down, they actually sometimes uh, suffer the most. So when, and the reason is because I'm going to call it the property price bell curve, where if you've got locations, I'm going to use Turak here as an example in Melbourne, because it's fair to say that is a blue chip suburb, very, very high incomes in, in Turak. But at the top end of the market in Turak, when we're talking about, you know, $10 million houses, six ten. $15 million houses, there are m much fewer buyers at the top end of the bell curve versus in the middle of the bell curve. So what that means is when the market does soften, and especially when you've got really limited turnover in those locations, 
the on-paper value drop can be quite significant. So I remember having a journalist call me once, um, I think it was either 2019, but it's before the election, or maybe it was in COVID or something where we did have um, a, a decline in the market. And they said, wow, Turak has declined more than any other suburb in Melbourne. Does this mean it's a great time to buy into Turak? <laughs> I said, well, no, the, the data is not representative of, what, of what's actually happening there. It's still an extremely expensive suburb to buy in. Um, but then also when you've got the upswing again and the market grows again, those areas in that end of the bell curve also increases really strongly as well. So that is, so that's locations. We're talking about areas which are aspirational, desirable, they've got income growth and they've got historical, we're talking about decades of years of, uh, decades of performance and consistency. And these areas might not be outperforming every other suburb every year, but they do have that consistency. But then we've also got the dwelling selection. So the, the house itself within those suburbs which is also important because you can buy into a blue chip suburb, but you can buy an undesirable property and then you won't get the benefit of the upswing of that suburb or the benefits of the blue chipness of that suburb. So we also have to think about the dwelling in that location. Like what, what is the type of dwelling that appeals to the broad local demographics? What is the type of property that still has some scarcity, but not too scarce, we don't want to have something that's so scarce that that no one wants to buy it because it's quirky. We want to make sure we're buying on a nice street where, you know, something that's closer to amenity that rather than on the edge of the suburb is going to perform better and essentially avoiding anything which will detract buyers. So I would rather buy into a less blue chip suburb than buy into a blue chip suburb but have, have my house backing onto a freeway. It defeats the purpose because we're going to reduce our broad buyer appeal for that particular property. You made some really good points there. So I think you're right. If you go right up to the towards the top end of the market at the high end, then it's quite thinly traded. I mean, by almost by definition, there just aren't that many buyers in that part of the market anyway. And a lot of people land bank stuff and don't sell it very often. And I think as well, I mean, there's often these conversations about prices are crazy, not sustainable. I mean, that, that's that been a, talked about for as long as I can remember in Sydney and Melbourne. But yeah, so you're right. The top end of the market, it's not, um, that's not really representative of, of most of the of the transactions. I, I think if you, if you went back through history, just reading here from an old blog post of mine, 1979, the first $1 million uh, home sale in Sydney, Elizabeth Bay, uh, Boomerang the property sold for $1 million, becoming reportedly the first home in Australia to achieve a seven-figure sale. Well, today, I don't know exactly, but I would say probably closer to 100 mil would be nearer the mark for that type of property. So in a sense, yes, you, you people might say not sustainable. Even six months ago, there was a little bungalow up on the clifftops at Tamarama called Lang Syne, and that sold for about 45 million. It was an absolute dump of a property, So, but this scarcity factor. So, yeah, but if we're going to sort of dial down the conversation a little bit to, you know, the types of properties that uh, people who aren't billionaires can buy, then, yes, you, you need to get into uh, the types of like uh, locations and also property types that are going to appeal to a broader demographic within that suburb. So if you're looking at... Um, Melbourne, I'm, I'm guessing, as you say, suburbs like would somewhere like Brunswick or somewhere like that come into the equation. But you want to get the right properties, not the ones that are on the busy thoroughfares or 
uh, as you said, sometimes backing onto transport links and things like that, because then you're really stripping out a big chunk of the potential buyers. And I suppose in the, in the long term, impacting your capital growth as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just sort of come back to reiterating the the problem or the issue with property data is you can't just look at historical data and make a decision on that because then we also have to think about what's happening in the future. And short-term data is also very, can be very misleading in property as well. And again, and I had another situation where a journalist called me and said, um, you know, I know you live in Fitzroy and Fitzroy I've seen has had a, a decline of 30% in the last quarter. Is it a great time to buy in Fitzroy? And I said, if Fitzroy had declined by 30%, everyone would be buying. I'd be buying five properties tomorrow in that case. And what I did is I went and had a look through the sales and there, um, three. there, <laughs> there was like three sales of houses in the last quarter and they were all compromised in some way. So, you know, you know, near, near the freeway or, you know, on a main road or something. So data is just, just absolutely use it with a grain of salt. And if you're going to rely on data to make decisions, especially stuff that's in magazines or journalists are putting out, like you really have to, um, you, you really have to analyze that a, a little bit more. I remember so, the old, um, property magazines used to have the suburb capital growth um, I can't remember if it was quarterly or monthly. It but was quarterly and also, yes, but, right. but, it's, but it's also lagging so much by the time those magazines out that are out. That is old, old news. Old yeah, and you'd look to your <laughs> suburb and see, oh, it's up 20%, fantastic, for a quarter. But then you look at the number of sales, it was like, okay, it's based on about five or something. Uh, I, I remember, um, yes, uh, Michael Matusik saying to me, um, when we had lunch some years ago, is that the only real way to measure capital growth is you've got this property, the same property, selling the same property over two different periods of time. That's really what capital growth is. It's not, you know, somebody sold an expensive house here and a cheap flooded property there. And, you know, like that, those medians can get skewed by that unless you've got a decent number of transactions to make up uh, the figure. So you're right. Data is useful, um, but it's often backward looking. And you need to just understand what it is you're actually looking at because it could be misleading if you're not getting the full picture. And as you said, I think with um, blue chip property, you you would like to see long, consistent capital growth over decades. You know, sort of seven to ten percent sort of growth in in prices consistently over a very long period of time, as co as compared to um some of the more speculative areas which in australia is historically sometimes been mining towns where you get these enormous mm. booms in prices and then they go all the way back to where they started again uh, we've seen the same thing in europe sometimes in the more sort of uh, fashionable holiday locations you get uh, sort of these big asset bubbles but then everything unwinds and goes back to where it began um so blue chip doesn't really do that a bit like with the stock market you're looking at things where you can say with pretty high level of confidence that people will still want to live there in 10, 20, 30 years' time and the the, the sort of price performance will probably reflect that. Yeah, so we've, we've at one end of, the, say, the, the the spectrum, we've got blue chip and I would say speculative is at the very other end of this, this spectrum there. It's almost the opposite. Hmm. And then we have suburbs, like you mentioned earlier, Pete, which are, say, gentrifying. I would say on the spectrum this is closer to the speculative end, because these are areas that haven't potentially yet shown 
uh, shown shown growth or shown longevity or consistency, depending on where you get in on the gentrifying timeline. Because if you get in at the very start before there's, you know, the smashed avocado cafes and um, all of the, the yuppie, I'll use the word yuppie, I'm a yuppie, <laughs> moving into the area because you think that that, that area is going to gentrify. And by the way, gentrification can take a long time, Pete. It can take a very, very long time for this to change. Um, but if you get in at the very start, then you can experience quite a quite a big upswing. But it's not but it's still areas which are have got longer term growth for a reason that you can see, for example, they've still got transport links, they've still got connections to the city, they've still got good quality properties or desirable properties. And, you know, there's reasons why people are moving there. And it's not just because of one industry or one mining town or one thing opening and one kind of employment opportunity. Um, so, or you can get in towards like when you've already started to see a suburb gentrifying and towards the end where you might've already missed the, not, not, you've not missed the boat, but you haven't got on the boat at the very start. And then in between blue chip, I'm going back to my spectrum, in between blue chip and gentrifying, I'm just going to call them like normal suburbs, mm. you know, just suburbs which aren't necessarily blue chip, but they're still desirable. They're still areas where they've got, um, you know, strongish incomes and desirability, but they have already shown some performance um, and they have more white collar workers moving into them, et cetera. So, you know, when, when we're making a decision around buying a property, the reason why we need to consider all of these things is when, if we're, if we're buying an investment property, for example, we need to then come back to what we were talking about earlier with the share market. It's that risk versus return. Yes, we can buy into a blue chip area. It's it's going to be more ex- much more expensive, but you're going to have that, well, hopefully have that consistency and growth in the long term versus being really speculative and taking a big risk, but knowing that with risk comes the risk of losing money as well. But then our budget or our cash flows might mean that we can't do blue chip and therefore we have to be somewhere in the middle. And then we make a decision and we can take a chance on a gentrifying suburb or be a little bit safer and go with a regular suburb. But then also, you know, that's that's an investment decision that we're making. And we're going to talk about how to create your investment brief a little bit later in the episode. But it is also relevant as well when it comes to buying a home. And Chris um, always talks about in a lot of episodes, he talks about asset selection, even when you're buying a home. Um, but, and the reason why that is important is because when you purchase a home, first and foremost, I do want to say that it needs to suit you more than anything else. Because if I said to you, Pete, you can go and buy a home, which you love and it suits you perfectly and you absolutely love living there, but it's not going to perform or you're not going to be able to sell it as much as something else which you might not enjoy living there as much or the commute to work is going to be really annoying, but you can sell it for more in the future. Which would you choose? It's no right or wrong answer, but, I mean, I know which one I would choose. Yeah, that's right. I think there's there's a lot of old cliches in real estate. and I think location, location, location is a, it's a tired old uh sort of um saying or mantra but it, it these things exist for a reason and i guess that's the thing is that one of the uh sort of 
um, things about buying properties, it's totally fixed in place. Like you can change all kinds of things about a property, the layout. Um, you might even be able to change the aspect or, you know, you can change the garden, but you can't change the location. Once you've bought, that's it. You're fixed in place. And whether you own that property for two years, 20 years or however long, um, that can't be changed. So if you're on a busy street, yeah, all right, electric vehicles might be quieter in the future, but it's still <laughs> going to be a busy street. And that's, I guess, so that's the really, that's why people, when they say location, location, that's what they mean, I guess, is it, you, you can't really change anything in terms of the location once you're bought. So that, I mean, to me, that would be probably the the number one thing. I, I don't worry so much about, you know, dodgy bathrooms or even you no. know, floor, floor plan to some degree. I'd rather see the location be right. That would be my preference. Yeah, and and the reason why Chris does talk about so often, and rightly so, because he's a broker but he also used to be a financial planner, is that ideally you want to future-proof your property decision as much as you can and there's two elements of that. One is ensuring that that property is suitable for you for as long as you need it to be suitable for, whether you want to purchase that property for a five-year or 20-year horizon. But then also just giving you more opportunities and more um, like chance in the future to then upgrade from there or improve your current position. So the reason why asset selection is important is because you don't ideally want to go backwards with a property. And ideally, you want to be at least buying a property which keeps up with the market. So in the future, if you want to buy something else, not necessarily upgrade or spend more, even just buy something else that's similar in a different area, you don't want to have lost money on that property uh, because then it's obviously harder to get back in or harder to upgrade in the future. But I don't think that you should let this whole idea around asset selection give you analysis paralysis. I was talking to someone at a barbecue the other day and they said that the worry or the concern, they had so much anxiety around choosing the right property for their first property that they just didn't buy anything for years and years and years. And once they got to the point where they say, okay, well, this was this is a home that I want to live in, they just started focusing on what is right for them. It just allowed them to let go of all of that. But we still need to overlay it a little bit and we still need to understand what makes a good location, what makes a good property, so that ideally we can still buy something that suits you but also gives you the potential for future growth as well. And that doesn't necessarily mean buying into a blue chip location, but it's still good to know like what defines a location. And, you know, if you do want, if all of those things are important to you and you can afford it, then absolutely great, go and buy there. But you shouldn't be just doing everything you can and sacrificing everything and, you know, spending all of your money just to get into a blue chip location because that's what you hear about and that's the word that you hear, the catchphrase you hear all of the time. It's one of the um, perils of being a buyer's agent uh, that uh, you work six days a week, sometimes seven days a week. Then you go to a barbecue and people ask you questions about property. So, <laughs> busman's holiday, no time off. Uh, yeah, yep. so and- it's, uh, it's unavoidable, though, I guess, because it is a it's a common topic of discussion for people where to live, you know, which locations, as you get older, then school zones and all, all of those things are, are regular topics. Yeah, exactly right. And if you are wanting to buy into a blue chip location too, we've just got to then come back and remember that these areas are generally more expensive. So quite often I'm working with investors who will have a budget of say $800,000. 
we're not going to be buying into what I would define as a blue chip location here in Melbourne in most cases because for $800,000 in those locations, you're probably looking at an apartment or potentially like a like a, a, a quite a small villa or a villa on a main road. And then I would say I would rather buy a different kind of asset in, in another suburb um, rather than buying an apartment, for example. So it's not just focusing on blue chip location beyond everything else. Yeah, so, so that's what you would call like a mortgage belt type budget because, yes, you're right, you could buy into a blue chip suburb or postcode, but if it's a one-bedroom unit, I mean, look, in, in Sydney now, you know, if you want to go beachside suburb, um, you might be looking at 1.5 million for a unit, you know, but, um, yeah, so it depends, you know, and, and you might say, well, for that kind of budget, well, shouldn't I be buying a house on a good block of land somewhere else? Um, certainly that's the view we've been taking in recent years. I think um, that the price point um, in some of those areas is just so high, even just for, a, you know, an old red brick apartment, you know. So, uh, yes, it, that's probably what you would term, yes, sort of middle-income suburbs or mortgage belt suburbs um, rather than just going for the postcode and buying a small unit or, you know, which it, in some cases, you might even be getting a tiny amount of space. Um, so if, you, if you're looking to build a brief, Amy, so what kind of things do you look at? Obviously, the budget's the starting point. Uh, but what mm-hmm. kind of things do you sort of start to map out when you're thinking about a purchase? All right. So when we're building your property brief, which is like your shopping list, like these are the things that I that define the type of property and location where I'm going to buy. First of all, dividing it, whether it's a home or an investment, Sometimes it's very clear as to what it is. Sometimes or quite often people want a combination of both. I want a home, but it needs to really perform. It needs to be a great investment. Ideally, you figure out what the priority goal is there because, again, coming back to what I said before, Pete, I could buy you a home that's a great investment. You might not necessarily want to live there or enjoy living there. And Owen and I did a a very, very long episode on how to build your home buying brief. So go back and listen to that one. But if we're building an investment brief, well, the outcome there is still similar. So what we're trying to get to towards that property brief is then to figure out how much are we spending, which locations, which suburbs are we buying in, and what characteristics are we looking for? And people often get confused when they say, like they'll say something like, my investment brief is to buy a property which I can renovate and has strong land to asset ratio. That's not a brief. That's not a brief. Your brief is to then say, okay, well, those are the goals I'm trying to achieve. But then what does that actually look like? Think about it like this. If you're calling up a real estate agent and you say to them, hey, I want to buy a property where I can value add, they'll say, elaborate, (laughs) tell me more. So instead you say, I'm looking in these suburbs with these characteristics, three bedrooms, it needs to be quite dated, happy to do an extension. But the way that we get there and the way that we get to figuring out what that shopping list is and that brief is, is by having these um, inputs. And the inputs into that is first and foremost, your budget. How much do you actually have to spend on this property? And for an investment property, this can be a little bit gray sometimes because just because a bank will lend you $2 million, you're not necessarily going to go and buy one $2 million property. And this is where I personally think it's really helpful to sit down with a financial planner, especially if you have options to then say, okay, well, what do we do? Do we buy one growth asset 
or do I buy two properties or do I just spend a million dollars now or $500,000 now and then wait a few years and do something else? So budget can be a little bit gray, but figure out how much you're going to spend. And then second to that is your cash flows. And your cash flows are how much after your income comes in, that is the rent, and all of the expenses go out. That is the mortgage being the biggest one, the property management expenses, the insurances, the rates, everything that costs you money. How much out of pocket per month? It might be out of pocket or if you're in an area where you've got positive cash flow, then you've got an income coming in. But how much per month are you able or willing to contribute to that property per month out of pocket? This is pre-tax figures, by the way, ideally you're working off. So then those two things are generally the biggest like defining factors of what you can actually then go and buy because the more you can contribute out of pocket per month, technically, the the stronger capital growth asset you can you can purchase and not everyone can do that and then you've got to overlay all of these extra things for example like if you want to build your portfolio over time but if you spend your entire borrowing capacity and max out your cash flows now you're not necessarily going to be able to buy another property soon Um, and then extra things like your personal preferences for example some investors want set and forget i've just bought an invest for an investor and she said I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to renovate. I don't want to, I want it to be super low maintenance versus other investors want to value add. They want to renovate or they want to subdivide. So then all of those kind of things, you have to kind of merge them together and that'll help then define your property brief. This is really hard thing to do. This is really, really challenging, especially if you're a borderless investor and you say, I'm happy to buy anywhere in Australia. Because for me, Pete, if someone gave me those parameters, because I've been doing this for so long, I can immediately say to them, all right, based on the areas in Melbourne I work in, that looks like a three-bedroom townhouse in these particular suburbs. Or we could buy a two-bedroom single front in these particular suburbs. Like I can automatically take those parameters and say, this is these are our options. Now let's choose the best options. But if you're an investor and you're not working with an advocate, this is actually a really hard thing to figure out. Right. So there's a couple of key principles there. One one is to borrow um, less than you can afford. I mean, it sounds an obvious thing, but sometimes the bank will lend you a certain amount. But if you've got prep school or private school fees coming up in two or three years' time, or if you've got other career plans that the bank doesn't necessarily know about, you need to be... Um, you need to have a plan for making the repayment. So that's the first one. And I think the other thing is to try and, as you said, almost try and begin with the end in mind or almost reverse engineer the strategy. Because as you said, it's not not much use using up all of your borrowing capacity if you want to, I don't know, buy in a certain school zone in a couple of years down the track. Because then, you know, you've used up your uh, bullets, so to speak, and everyone has a finite borrowing capacity these days. Um, so yes, you've, and you've, you've, uh, quite rightly there uh, sort of pointed out yes there's there's always going to be personal preferences and goals to take into account which is why building the brief i suppose is so specific to the individual um so yeah a bit of um strategic thinking at the outset is obviously important because um yeah like everyone has different life goals and uh, the property plan has to fit into whatever you're planning to do with your career with your life with your family 
uh, travel and whatever other aspirations you might have as well. Yeah, exactly right. So I think that building the brief, the building the brief at the very start is important. And then, you know, just having that understanding the concept of blue chip in the background just so that you know what those kind of suburbs and what those areas offer, whether it's buying a home or buying an investment. But that shouldn't come first. You shouldn't just say, I'm just going to go and buy an investment property in a blue chip location. Well, can you actually afford it? Can you actually afford the right type of dwelling in that location to give you the returns? So building your property brief first and then just overlaying those additional principles, um, investment principles in general, just to help support those decision-making. That's really what we're, the, the whole like what we're trying to achieve with this episode today is just to say like blue chip isn't the overarching goal if it doesn't suit your property strategy. That's right. And I think I'd probably add to that as well to try and just control the controllables. You can you can choose the the asset, the asset selection that Chris always talks about. Um, uh, so that is something you can control, but market conditions, they're going to be, something that you can't control. And in fact, I would even go so far to say if you're planning to, to be a long-term investor, and this is particularly relevant in 2023, you're going to get periods where interest rates are going up. You'll have periods where rates are going down. There might be times when rents are booming and other times where they're not. They'll be undersupply, oversupply. You know, If you're going to invest through multiple cycles, you're going to see all of that and you can't really control it. Yes, you can try and time the market to the extent possible but there's nothing you can do as an individual to change what's happening in in the economy so you need to get the asset selection right because that is the one thing that is within your control i suppose oh absolutely and some of my clients who have made the biggest gains and the biggest capital growth yes of course i've helped them buy a great property in a great location but it's because they've bought at the bottom of the market and sold at the top And in most of those cases, it was just purely by chance because it was just right time, right place. Um, But even right now, there's, you know, we're in late 2023. I'm currently buying some properties for clients for the same price that they, that vendor has bought those properties for in 2016, 2017, because that was a really strong market here in Melbourne. We've had a bit of growth. We've had a bit of decline in the meantime. Um, but these are in blue chip locations, great locations. So that's a really great example of saying that, you know, market forces in many cases can override your asset selection. So that's just something to bear in mind as well, not to try and like put fear into you or anything, because again, this is outside of your control. Um, so yeah, just just focusing on what you can control, which is your property brief and making sure that that aligns with your personal requirements if it's a home or your longer-term investment requirements if it's an investment property. That's all you need to focus on. Oh, for sure. I think uh, we've, we've seen that uh, quite a lot in um, Sydney where there was a big boom in high-rise construction around, around 2016, 2017. And very often you see uh, people bought units off the plan, a lot of Chinese buyers at the time from overseas, uh, Epping, Olympic Park, those kind of areas. And for years afterwards, there were trading at much lower prices and uh, so when uh, you see all these media articles about property bubbles and so on well not everywhere um you know there's some there's definitely been some frothy markets through the pandemic but there's um, we've seen the same in brisbane a lot of inner city markets um prices were actually lower over a long period of time only only really in the past year have they started to take off again so yeah i guess that's where um, the asset selection comes into play and also 
uh, getting the right price as well, of course. Um, Amy, I think we've we've covered a lot of ground there. And I think <laughs> most importantly of all, I've learned some new uh, poker terminology. So uh, uh, next time I'm at the tables, I'll uh, I'll not look like such a rookie because I'll know to go for the blue chips uh, being the most valuable. <laughs> it's funny, Pete, whenever we start recording an episode, we say, oh, how long do you reckon we'll chat for? Maybe 20 minutes? And it's always at least double. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's probably a, an analogy there for budgeting for a renovation. Uh, so you need oh, to oh my gosh, sure don't even those overruns. Don't uh, even talk to me about that. I'm in. I'm nearly finished my renovation at the moment. We're not even going to discuss budget, Pete. No, <laughs> it's been a very difficult time for uh, people doing renovations um, and for builders with fixed price contracts as well. But that's maybe a subject for another day. Amy, if oh, people want to catch up with you, uh, what you're doing in Melbourne? Where should they go for more? Yeah, so if you if you're looking to buy a property in Melbourne, a home or an investment, amylenardi.com.au is where you can find me. Or I've also got my first home buyer course, which is specific to Victorian home buyers at the first home guidebook.com.au. And Pete, we can find you through various sources. Your your blog, for example, that is just a, a, my go-to if I'm wanting to get any kind of updates on the property market. Pete Wardgen Blogspot, that's my daily blog, or at Pete Wardgen on Twitter. And uh, yes, we're still actively buying in Brisbane and Newcastle and various places. So um, yeah, always keen to have a chat. So uh, shoot me an email and um, happy to give you a 15-minute diagnosis. So Amy, thanks so much. It's always great to uh, get the uh, the insider's track in how to buy the best properties. And um, yeah, I always learn something very useful on these chats. So thanks so much and look forward to chatting next time. Thanks, Pete. Catch you later. Thanks for tuning into the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.